This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress at the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements, and he was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this 13th episode of Lab Rat Chat, Danielle and I break around on the show by having our first episode with two guests, Dr. Joanne Turner, VP of Research at Texas Biomed, and Dr. Louise martinez Sobrito, scientist and professor at Texas Biomed. They joined us on the show to talk about a new type of mouse model they have developed in order to better understand COVID-19 and address some of the various information that we're all hearing about in the media. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this 13th episode of Lab Rat Chat. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Lab Rat Chat where today Danielle and I have both Dr. Joanne Turner, the VP of Research at Texas Biomed, and Dr. Luis Martinez-Sobrito, Professor of Disease Intervention and Prevention at Texas Biomed. Today, they're going to talk to us about their research with COVID-19. But as always, before we jump right into it, please just get out there, rate and review Lab Rat Chat on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Stitcher, Podchasers, and again, just anywhere where you can find a place where you can review podcasts, get out there and do it for us. We really appreciate it. You can email Danielle and I directly with comments or feedback that you may have at labratchat at gmail.com. And we always try to respond to these messages directly. So feel free to reach out with any comments you have. Also, please like us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and along with your reviews. All this truly does make a difference. It makes the show much more visible to podcast listeners. So thank you for taking just a couple minutes out of your day to do this, which will allow us to continue producing episodes with interesting and exciting guests, just like the two that we have today. So thank you, Joanne and Louise, for joining us on Lab Rat Chat today. And if you could, we'll start with Louise. Just tell us a little bit about your background, what made you interested in science and biomedical research, and just give us a little bit of the journey that led to where you're at in your career today. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, as you said, my name is uh, Luis martinez Sobrito, and I'm a biologist uh, by training. Actually, I did my PhD in Spain, working with a respiratory syncytial virus that, as you know, is another important respiratory pathogen like uh, SARS-CoV-2. And then I had the opportunity to meet my uh, postdoctoral mentor in an international virology conference in Sydney, Australia. And I started working and uh, continuing my training at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City, uh, but in this case, working with influenza. And I just recently uh, relocated uh, my lab at Texas Biomed Research Institute in February of 2020, actually at the same time than the pandemic. And the main reason is because of the access to biosafety level four facilities and the non-human primates that they have at Texas Biomed. Thank you very much. And if anyone wants to know any more about Biosafety Level 4 facilities, go back and listen to episode 8, I believe, with Dr. Ricardo Carrion, where we talked about some high containment facilities, also from Texas Biomed. So go check that out. So if you would, Joanne, tell Danielle and I and our listeners a little bit about your background as well. Yeah, I love this type of question because I think people always think you have to come from an academic background to be able to be a scientist. I'm actually a first-generation graduate student. I left school at 16. Uh, my family background was fish and chip shop. I'm from England, if anyone didn't know, and that's uh, quite common there. And really didn't like school and didn't like having to memorize things and didn't realize at that time that understanding concepts was actually really rewarding and problem solving, but didn't have that at school at that age. 
So I left school and worked for six years in biotech companies, uh, learning some lab skills. And then in England, uh, we had a recession and my advisor encouraged me to go to college. And so I did my bachelor's and PhD in London in immunology. I'm an immunologist by trade. So I think about designing vaccines, studying diseases and the impact the immune system. And then moved to the U.S. Uh, to do a postdoctoral fellowship. And that's really where my career took off. I studied tuberculosis and I study aging. And I sometimes combine the two. And the, so my career was really in TB. And I just moved up the ranks of faculty positions at that point uh, until Texas Biome was just such a great opportunity to come in and do more of an administrative role, which I really enjoy doing. I also feel that pressure as a woman scientist to step into leadership roles as a role model for others. Uh, it's harder to get where you need to be as a woman. And so I'm here. I can make a difference now and kind of pull people up to work with me, which is really rewarding. Yeah, I really love to hear people's background as well. And love the fact that you didn't always have your eyes you know, on the PhD scientist dream. When I was 16, 17 as well, I was not a huge fan of school. My goal is to either be a professional snowboarder or be a firefighter. That's what I was going to do. And then I ended up deciding to go to college and then graduated. And then 10 years later, now I'm back in, in veterinary school. So you've come a long way, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, everyone has their own journey. That's for sure. So if you guys could tell us a little bit about the research that you guys have going on specifically at Texas Biomed. I was reading that you know, you're working with humanized mice. And what makes the humanized mouse a good model for studying COVID-19? Why not just your standard lab mouse? So in my case, uh, the, the focus of the research in our laboratory is mainly on uh, respiratory viruses, such as influenza or uh, coronavirus, and hemorrhagic fever viruses, including Ebola and Lassa, that, as, as you know, are endemic and, and responsible for causing hemorrhagic fever in humans in West and Central Africa. Regarding the animal models, I mean, as you probably are aware, uh, Texas Biomed, before uh, going into these rodent models, uh, we developed uh, three non-human primate models, the baboons, marmoset, and rhesus macaque. But one of the things that we realized right away is that with these uh, non-human primate models, we will not be able to do all the work that we want to do in terms of testing prophylactics like vaccines or therapeutics like antivirals or monoclonal antibodies in these non-human primate models. And that's why in collaboration with uh, Joan and Jordi Torres, we developed uh, two rodent models at Texas Biomed. The first one is the one that you refer, Daniel, is this uh, humanized transgenic uh, mouse model. So this mouse model actually expressed the human angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or AC2. And this AC2 is the protein in the surface of the cell that the virus uh, used to bind and start the, the infection. Now, uh, this human AC2 is different than the mouse AC2, and that's why uh, the normal mice are not a good model for studying this virus because the, the virus cannot bind to the mouse AC2, but it can bind to the human AC2, and that's when we start uh, developing this uh, transgenic uh, human mouse model for um, SARS-CoV-2. Pretty much what we found is that these transgenic mice are highly susceptible to viral infection. They pretty much uh, lose uh, weight rapidly after we infect them. They actually died by five or six days after inoculating uh, the virus. Uh, we also found that the virus replicates efficiently in the upper and lower respiratory tract of these uh, mice and develops symptoms that are very similar to what we see with COVID-19 in humans. 
And the symptoms include, uh, you know, uh, lung inflammation and pathology similar to what is being reported uh, with viral infection in humans. We also found that these uh, transgenic uh, humanized mice also mount a very robust uh, chemokine and cytokine storm after viral infection, similar to what uh, has been found in, in by infection with this virus in humans. So altogether, what we found is these transgenic mice pretty much represent a, a very nice and good animal, a small animal model to study uh, COVID-19 pathogenesis and to study some of these uh, approaches that we are trying to develop at Texas Biomed in terms of vaccine development and therapeutics for the treatment of uh, these viral infections. Now, the other rodent models that we develop are the golden Syrian hamster or hamsters. And similar to what we found in the mouse model is that the virus replicate very efficiently in the upper and lower respiratory tract. But in the case of the hamster, it seems like uh, although the, the hamsters get uh, lose some of the weight, they all recover from viral infection, um, but it still represent uh, a great small animal model to study the pathogenesis of this virus and related uh, COVID-19 disease. Joanne, do you have anything that you wanted to add to that one? I can add to that uh, and really talk about the, the benefits of that mouse model. Um, obviously, the non-human primates are a gold standard for moving products through to humans, but they are a limited commodity, right? We can't do every single invention that someone's come up with in a non-human primate. And so we do rely on rodents to really uh, screen things very quickly. And so you can breed a lot of mice um, and hamsters very quickly. And with mice, you can actually genetically manipulate them. And I think this ACE2 mouse model is a really good example of that. The wild-type mice are not susceptible to this virus, which we would normally screen in that model, and it would be easy to do. So we had to genetically manipulate that mouse so that it was susceptible, and it does recapitulate a lot of things we see in humans. And so the, the mice are a powerful tool because we can also modify lots of other proteins in them and screen them very, very quickly and rule out all those products that actually are unlikely to be effective in humans and then only screen the really feasible ones in non-human primates so that we really limit the amount of NHP work that we're doing. Um, but we do the critical studies to go through to humans. So are we getting any closer to determining, say, the infectious dose of COVID-19, you know, knowing this along with approximately how many viral particles people with the virus, both symptomatic and asymptomatic, are they spreading when they sneeze, cough, you know, those sorts of things? I guess, how close are we to having more of these answers? Um, I think anecdotally, we know that some people are more infectious than others. Um, and I think uh, we don't really know in great detail uh, the answers to those questions. And so we have to then make assumptions and it's best to make assumptions that are safer. And so if we don't know how many particles it takes to get infected or how long you need to be with a person to get infected, we make a best guess. We do that uh, by testing things in a lab to see how long particles stay in the air um, and estimate what the risk might be for humans. Um, I think more importantly is that we we know some of the things that keep us safe and we should implement them. So even if we don't know if somebody with us is infectious, uh, we can actually protect ourselves by asking them to wear a mask anyway. And we know that masks are a really good way of reducing transmission. So known or unknown, uh, we have the tools in our hands to be able to make ourselves um, much safer when we're in a crowd or interacting with any individual. And, and so that's something that we should do. So I might argue that it's, it's not critical that we know the answer to those questions because we do know the answer to how we can keep ourselves safe. And so if every single person wore a mask, 
it, we would not be transmitting to each other and then fewer people would be infected and then we could actually uh, remove this infection from our population much quicker. But in the lab, we are looking at answering some of those questions. We do know that the virus now is not just spread by particles such as cough and sneeze, but can actually persist in the air in aerosol. Uh, and that means it will stay in spaces longer than we initially thought. Uh, and so, again, wearing a mask whenever you're out and about is, is really the best thing you can do to protect yourself uh, and to protect others. What are your thoughts about wearing masks outside? Because there's been research about showing that COVID-19 is so susceptible to UV light and killed almost instantly. And then you hear some research that may contradict that as well. Is it just indoors? I mean, are we safer outdoors with this virus? Or do you have any opinion or thoughts on that? We're certainly safer outdoors, yes. Uh, and I think some of those uh, apparent contradictions are because it's a new virus, it's unknown, and we're all working at it very quickly, and we're putting information out as we find it. And so often, our initial observations then get modified when we learn more. And so that's why it seems like in science, we're, we're kind of sometimes changing our minds, but that's because we've gathered new information in a more robust way. And if we study something very quickly, we might say, you must wear a mask in this environment. And then we study it with a bigger group size. And it shows us that potentially we might have to change the advice that we gave. I think it is safe to be outside. Obviously, we know that with air moving around, it's harder to breathe in a, a virus. Um, I think as long as you're a safe distance from people, that's good practice. If you're outside in a crowd, then I think a mask would certainly be warranted. Anything that can reduce that transmission out on a hike on your own with no one around you is probably a very safe thing to do. Right. So I know you said you're working on the infectious dose. And do we know whether or not severity of this disease is really correlated with how many viral particles a person becomes infected with? Or is we talking more less to do with infectious dose and maybe more in a person's more the person's individual immune system? Or even hear talk about different blood types and stuff like that, being able to transmit differently or be infected more severely. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that those are great questions, but we don't know the answer for them yet. And that's why these uh, transgenic mice will play, uh, uh, they will be a great tool for answering this question. The, the only thing that we can tell you is that uh, what we know from other respiratory viruses similar to COVID-19, like influenza, that there is a good correlation on the amount of viruses that you use to start infection with the severity of con of, of the disease. So meaning that if you get infected with uh, more uh, viral particles, you will get uh, more uh, severe disease. Now, in, in the case of the transmission, uh, as uh, Joan mentioned, one of the things that uh, the hamster model will be great is, is to study how the virus transmits. And the, and the reason is because mice uh, do not scoff or sneeze. And that's why, at least for our studies with influenza, that is transmitted by aerosols, they are not going to be a good model to evaluate transmission of the virus. And the hamster will, might be a, or play a better role for these transmission studies. Do hamsters cough and sneeze? Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> ferrets do as well, right? Don't ferrets cough and sneeze? That's why they're used for influenza research. Is that or at least one of the reasons as well? Has anybody looked at ferrets? Yeah, Jeff, that's correct. Uh, for transmission studies with influenza, there are the two uh, best implemented animal models are ferrets, like you say, and also guinea pigs. That's really interesting. So that kind of answers my next question. I was going to ask about, you know, the mouse model for transmissibility studies, but it sounds like we've already kind of determined the hamster is the best model. Is there any kind of pivoting to, I guess, more rumors in the media? Is there any truth behind the story that children seem less susceptible? Is that something that you guys might also be looking at, you know, age dependent? Could that be a factor? 
So um, we're not looking at children specifically in our research labs, but certainly they're an area of investigation. I think, again, the anecdotes would support that children can be infected and most likely don't, most of them don't become so sick. It doesn't mean that they're all immune from being sick, right? We have stories of some children being very, very sick, and that might be linked to their health status or genetics, and we don't know that. And so we have to always work from the assumption that any one of us could be at risk of becoming very sick with this virus because we don't know enough about it yet. But it does seem that children certainly get less sick. We are looking at Texas Biomed at the impact of increasing age. And so my lab work on aging specifically, and we have looked in mice uh, that are essentially the equivalent of a 60 to 70-year-old human. Um, and we're looking in wild-type mice that we haven't put this ACE2 protein in. Um, and they, they do lose a little bit of weight. And so there is some susceptibility increases with increasing age, um, which we know, and some of that's due to comorbid conditions, heart disease, high blood pressure, and so on. Uh, so that's something uh, that we are looking at here. But I, I always default back to the same thing, which is I don't know whether I'm genetically predisposed or have a health condition I'm not aware of or have a higher dose because I interacted with someone in the small room. And so I never know if I'm the person going to the ICU. And so I always default back to trying to make sure I'm not putting myself in risky situations because. I could get sick or be infected and have no symptoms, or I could get sick and end up in hospital. And, and we don't know what it is that sends some individuals to the ICU at this point. We have some hints, but we still haven't studied it enough to know specifically what those criteria are. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible the amount of information we've learned about this virus in really relatively a short amount of time. I know the public seems to be asking questions about well, why we don't have vaccines already. But I mean, vaccines typically can take a decade to produce. And we're talking about early next year or sooner, or, you know, the timeframes all over the place. But even if we were to get something early next year, that'd be incredibly fast. I just want to bring up one thing too. you talk about these ACE receptors. When I hear that, I think of ACE inhibitors. Is there any correlation to like hypertension or you know, cardiac function or anything like that when it comes to COVID-19? What is it what about these ACE receptors? Or I just automatically think ACE inhibitors and think heart and hypertension or high blood pressure. I'm hoping Luis is going to answer this one. Luis, do you want to answer? Yeah, I mean, that's not clearly my area of expertise. I, I know that at Texas Biomed, uh, we have some colleagues that they are looking at, at this and how infection with the virus can uh, or, or some um, um, diseases like uh, hypertension and cardiovascular disease impact the, the income of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Okay, yeah, thanks. I'm going to just cross my mind. So that covers most of the COVID questions that we have. I mean, one of the things that we always ask everybody on this show is to kind of tell us a little bit about how they describe what they say to people when you're asked what you do for a living. Do you bring up that you do animal research or work with animals for a living? You know, what kind of reactions do you get and how do you approach it and handle it in a professional way? And we like this question because it helps other people in the field, whether they're scientists or veterinarians or vet techs, be able to go out confidently in the, in the public and talk about animal research in a way that promotes the field in a positive way. I think about this question a lot. Uh, I'm from England where uh, the tolerance for animal research is uh, really not very high. And so I used to historically not talk about doing animal research. Uh, since I've been in the US, I've been more open to speaking about it. And plus, I, um, I accept that that's part of my job to help educate why we need animals. Uh, Texas is certainly um, 
seems to be more amenable to animal research. They, our Texans understand the need for that. So I'm more outspoken. Um, I obviously work at an institute that does animal research. I myself do animal research primarily with rodents. I think about it in a couple of different ways. Um, obviously, I can think about it academically. Uh, and as a scientist, it helps me get to an answer quicker. And COVID's a great example where if we had only been relying on human observations and then controlled humans trials, we would not know what we know already. So our rodents uh, and our non-human primates have helped us accelerate the pace of research so that we can develop a vaccine. I think about it philosophically a little bit. Um, I think uh, animals that are used in experiments certainly are sacrificing themselves for the greater good for human and animal health. Um, we would still have polio, um, a lot more tuberculosis, HIV, malaria, uh, all of this research is, um, all these diseases have benefited uh, and humans have benefited from having animals um, studied. Same for high blood pressure, cholesterol, we're all taking drugs uh, as we get older for controlling those diseases um, as, as well as controlling mental illness. So we benefit a lot from animals. Um, and so there is a greater good for humanity from a few animals being used in studies. And I contrast that with something like the meat industry. So I am a vegetarian. And even though I work on animals in the lab, I choose not to eat meat personally because the meat industry doesn't meet my philosophical needs where animals are being sacrificed for the greater good. They're really being sacrificed for um, often unhealthy um, eating habits because we shouldn't be eating the volume of meat that we do right now. And so that's really how I think about it. And when I talk about it, it's very personal to me. Um, I care about animals. I have my own pets. Uh, I care about the animals at our institute. I'm responsible for a lot of the animal welfare um, things that we do on our campus. And so they should be maintained healthily. We have laws that make us do that, but we also have that personal interest in doing it. Our animal caretakers really care about our animals. Um, they do as much as they can to make those animals very, very comfortable, even though the goal of that animal may be to test whether they are protected against an infection or against um, some kind of heart disease. Um, it's not taken lightly that we're actually taking an animal's life to answer that question. Yeah, that's great response. Great thoughts. Louise, do you have anything you wanted to add to that? Or how do you describe your approach to this when asked about what you do for a living? Not that much to add. I mean, in, in, in my particular case, people is actually very thankful that when we tell them that uh, we work with uh, SARS-CoV-19 and that we are developing these small animal models to to study vaccines and antiviral to combat the, the disease, especially if we are focusing on these small animal models like the transgenic mice that will reduce the number of non-human primates that we need to use for evaluating these vaccines or antivirals to combat the disease. So everybody is pretty aware of the severity of COVID-19 and the need that we have to develop vaccines and antivirals. So I think that everybody is quite supportive and happy that we are doing this. Yeah, I certainly like being involved in the field, especially right now, just knowing that I'm, you know, at least somewhat part of finding answers, just kind of working in the industry. And, you know, it's something to definitely be proud of right now, especially with this pandemic, unfortunately, going on. We've kind of wrapped up everything we hoped to talk to you guys about today. Are there any final thoughts or statements that we haven't covered that you guys want to get out to the public, either about your research or just COVID-19 in general? 
it's always nice to be able to recognize the staff on our institute's campus working. And so we have about a third of our personnel still on campus actively working on COVID and other diseases. Uh, they're putting in longer hours than they've ever done before. Uh, they understand the urgency to, to do this work. But uh, I absolutely appreciate what they're doing. And they show up every day with enthusiasm and passion for what they're doing, even though they're very tired. And they're working really hard. And so I, it's nice to get to have an opportunity to say that and express that publicly. Yeah, well, thank you guys for coming on the show. I do have one more quick question. I just I was thinking something triggered it in my head. But back to COVID-19, just real quick. What do we know about COVID-19 and possibly being able to be reinfected? You know, we've seen a case about that in the news recently in China. And I know initially we saw with non-human primates that they weren't able to be reinfected after recovering from the disease. Are you guys studying that at all with these mice or the research that you're doing? And have you seen animals been able to be reinfected with the disease after recovering? I'm going to step in. So that's clearly something that we are very interested in our groups, Joan, Jordi, and my group in seed reinfection in these uh, small animal models. And I think that these uh, transgenic mice will probably be a great uh, model to study if you know you can get reinfected uh, once you have uh, primary being infected with the virus. So with, with COVID-19, we don't know what's going to happen. We might be in a situation that, you know, similar to influenza, it, the virus will mutate and it will be different from one year to another. So I think these are very important questions. And, um, but unfortunately, we don't have the answer. But with these animal models, we will be able to answer at least some of them. Yeah, well, we look forward to seeing the results coming out of Texas Biomed and all the COVID-19 research you guys are doing. It's really great. So thank you guys for your time. Thank you for coming on the show and informing Danielle and I about all the research you're doing and informing our audience. I think everyone's really going to appreciate this episode. And thanks for taking the time out of your day. Thank you so much. It was great to see you. Thank you to you guys. Yeah, Danielle. Uh, just a reminder for our listeners, get out there, rate and review LibRat Chat wherever you can. Email Danielle and I at LibRatChat at gmail.com. And make sure you follow us on all of our social media accounts out there. Thank you for listening. And until next time, everyone. Thank you.